so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. In your mind? Is that it? Am I just up there cooking eggs in your kitchen all the time? That's one of my wife's favorite things is when I say I love to live rent-free in other people's brains. Bingo. I've never even heard that saying. I mean, Josh trots that out fairly regularly, and it's a good one, and he should. If I was going to define like being an eight in one short description, I would say that's what it is. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello, y'all. I'm in the same home where our guest will appear from today. How crazy is that? What a big day. So uh, I was about to make this big thing about our, you know, we always say there's a special guest, but today it's like a really special guest. But yeah, so Brent has already pointed in that direction. Uh, Joining us later in the podcast will be Brent's much better half, Meredith Leatherwood. She is uh, a bunch of wonderful things. I'm excited uh, for you guys to get to meet her and hear about her career. And, you know, she'll tell us a little bit about what it's like to put up with Brent. It's going to be a big day. Uh, But before Meredith joins us, uh, let's get into it. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. So the first article that we're going to take a look at is important, but it's also about a sensitive subject matter that if you have children in the car or around you while you're listening to this podcast, you might just want to take a minute and um, get them occupied elsewhere uh, so that their little ears um, don't listen to our conversation. We're going to cover an article by Jason Thacker, and it's about something that's happening during the pandemic that is disturbing, and uh, it might go unnoticed by some because it's out of sight, out of mind. But this article is about how pornography is preying on the vulnerable in the midst of COVID-19. So uh, you might not know it, but one of the world's largest pornography sites, it offered free access to people in some European countries during the lockdowns in order to keep people entertained, give them something to do, which is just horrible. And they put out these statistics and these reports, and they've reported during the pandemic that they've also had an increase in, obviously, of usership from 30, something like 38 to 61% throughout these European countries. But also, they've had an increase in the type of pornography that people are looking up worldwide. So, um, for instance, virus-related pornography. So this is something very insidious. It is something that um, an industry that preys upon basically our sinful nature, preys upon the vulnerable. Uh, Jason goes into the problem of pornography and what's at the core of it, that we treat people as objects and not as holistic human beings, embodied souls. So I'd encourage you to read this article. Many people in our churches are probably wrestling with pornography. We have to be aware of what's going on. We have to be ready and willing to speak the truth. We have to fight against the predatory pornography industry. And then we have to be a refuge for those who are seeking forgiveness through Christ's redemption and um, a refuge of protection for the people that this industry preys upon, the vulnerable. What I appreciated about this this piece from Jason is, A, he, he's talking about something that is a uh, a delicate subject. I mean, obviously, you just gave a, a, a warning for listeners who are parents with young children who might be in the background. But at the same time, he's taking a very strong convictional biblical stand against this. And I, I think we often forget how pervasive pornography is uh, in our culture and within our pews. And uh, this is something that we have got to consistently confront. You know, me as a man, I need to hold my Christian brothers in particular accountable, but it's something that even women 
uh, wrestle with. And we can't forget that. And so pastors, uh, our audience members who are pastors, like I would encourage you, continue to speak against this. Just when you think you have spoken against it enough, double down for the sake of uh, the members of your congregation. That's a good word, Brent, that it's not just a male problem, but female problem as well. I think part of combating it as you said, is speaking the truth, learning what God's Word says, and then also understanding, as I mentioned before, that Jason talks about the core of the issue, kind of why we do what we don't want to do. So the good news is that there is always the offer of forgiveness and redemption through Jesus Christ. And so we've got to be a church community that allows for open communication in appropriate um, circles of of um, friends and trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord to hold one another accountable. So moving on from there, we have another explainer by Alex Ward, who's our colleague, and he explains what happened with the report of the Human Fetal Tissue Research Ethics Advisory Board. So if that sounds like a mouthful, it's because it is. And if it sounds confusing to some, that's because it, it is. It's a little confusing to me, which is why we're so thankful that we're able to put out as the ERLC these resources, these explainers that help us understand what these seemingly complicated things are and why they matter, and that help us think about how to process these things as believers with a Christian worldview. Yeah, these explainers that we put out, you know, they're they're very helpful because all they all they are is trying to take some complicated subject in this case uh, fetal tissue research and make it uh, accessible in terms of what's going on for those who are not experts in this field. And so, uh, in this case, what what happened is that uh, one of the kind of leading questions in bioethics right now uh, surrounds human fetal tissue research, and the issue there is that a lot of important medical research is based on using these fetal tissues or fetal cells that come from human embryos that that are not born. And so obviously, uh, when those cells are harvested from children, unborn children who died as a result of an abortion, then there's a financial incentive uh, to procure this tissue from aborted children. Uh, that's obviously terrible and something that all Christians and those who are pro-life should oppose. This report was a, a group of experts coming together to make a recommendation to the government about what kinds of uh research to allow or support. And Alex in this piece uh, breaks down what their recommendations were, which were mostly negative, mostly decisions or encouragements not to fund research that would uh, in any way incentivize abortions or or benefit uh, from aborted children. Thank you for explaining that, Josh. And it's important to note, too, or just interesting to note, that one of the members of this board is uh, Dr. Ben Mitchell, who we recently talked about on the podcast uh, because he retired, but he is a leading Christian ethicist, very valuable in these kinds of fields, thinking about these kinds of things. So um, if you still need to read more about this, it still isn't quite making sense. Feel free to check this out on ERLC.com. That's why we put up these types of resources is to be able to serve our listeners and to be able to serve the church. And then finally, we have a piece by our very own co-host, Josh Wester. So he gives us four helpful lessons from Confession, a book that I've never read before. But in this article, I've learned it's only 89 pages. Josh's face is aghast because we FaceTime during these times, and he is shocked, probably has lost respect for me. But a book that I've learned is only 89 pages, so I think I could do that. But it's Carl F.H. Henry's The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. Some of the lessons that uh, that Josh draws out are things like Christianity is relevant and Christian ethics are personal and public. Christianity is robust. Christians stand against the world for the world. So though this might be an older book, though you might be turned off by the title, which I confess to you I might have been, uh, it's relevant for today. So Josh, can you tell us a little bit more about this if you're still wait, talking to me, if we're still on speaking terms? Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So you were shocked to learn that it's 89 pages just because it, it's such a robust read, right? Not because you've you've never read it. Or is that is that No, I was saying I learned it's 89 pages, so I should like the title makes it seem like it's a huge book. Right. But I learned that it's 89 pages, so I think I could read that. 
Okay. I so wasn't you, shocked about that. Josh so, is shocked. So you actually that have I have it. never. No, I have not read it. Okay. But right. that wasn't a lie. That was that was not just for your entertainment, folks. Okay, I was just making sure. <laughs> I mean, it it's it's only uh you know an incredible read uh, to help understand evangelicalism, uh, which I think is helpful in in our line of work. Uh, so um, I would definitely commend this to our audience and, and maybe even our co-hosts. Is this a good time to tell you I haven't read many of C.S. Lewis's books either? No, it's not a really good time for that. <laughs> I might as well, well just keep he, on letting you down. He was a pretty prolific author, and so I, I could see how you're still working your way through uh, Look, that I, canon. I've not read, you know, the Space Trilogy because that's not really my thing, but, you know, you should read C.S. Lewis because it's incredible. So Aghast or Agog, Lindsay, I got to tell you, please read this book. I'm, I'm still trying to recover from the, yeah, emo- tell us the emotional more about shock. It. Uh, look, Carl F.H. Henry was a titan in uh, the burgeoning evangelical movement. He was the founding editor of uh, Christianity Today. He is, you know, he was one of the most important Christian thinkers in the 20th century. And this book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, like one of the first things I say in this piece is don't let the title throw you. I get that, you know, I would make the concession, even though I love this book and I've probably read it more than 10 times because it's only 89 pages and you can do that. Um, I would change the title if I could, because I think that's a real impediment to a lot of people reading this book, but it really is fantastic. He wrote this uh, a few years after the conclusion of World War II. It it was a weird time in the United States and in the Western world as they were confronting the realities and and the horrific realities coming out of the war, including both the Holocaust and the first ever deployment of uh, atomic weapons in history and grappling with that, having come face to face with evil in what they saw uh, in in the Holocaust and with the Nazi regime, and then, uh, you know, experiencing this kind of post-war boom of, of economic recovery, trying to, you know, trying to figure out the spiritual landscape there was really, really a unique kind of challenge. And so uh, Carl F.H. Henry issues this call that basically talks about the fact that it's not enough for Christians to be pious people who attend church and read their Bibles and focus on spiritual things. What he says is that this book is about the Christian social ethic. It's about the fact that our faith has not only a vertical aspect, but a horizontal aspect as well, and that we are called as Christians to have our private, personal faith in Jesus, where we repent and believe and trust in him for our salvation, that that is in turn supposed to be a very public faith uh, that not only changes the way that we live our lives, but changes the way that Christians live in the world. And that's so appropriate, especially for the cultural moment that we find ourselves in in the United States and all of the social ills that are being exposed and all of the the confusion, the turmoil. Christians are to be, even the Christian infighting, um, a call for Christians to be salt and light and to be active in the public, in the public square, in social life for the good of our neighbors and for the glory of God. So, Brent and Josh, that's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that takes us to our culture section for the week. So Brent, there is obviously a lot going on uh, in culture this week and particularly with weather patterns, which is what I imagine you're going to take us to. So tell us what's going on. Josh, that was a perfect segue. And that is exactly where we are starting this week. So uh, we are going to the state line between Texas and Louisiana, because that is where a massive hurricane named Laura uh, made landfall early Thursday morning, right off the coast. Hurricane Laura made landfall in Louisiana as a Category 4 storm. Uh, The storm has battered large portions of the state, as well as portions of Texas and Florida. It currently, as of uh, our taping right now, has been downgraded to a Category 1 storm, which is fantastic. But this storm, it it grew in strength immensely the last 24 hours uh, before landfall. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, I think they're still weighing the data, but it is going to be one of the strongest storms right before landfall in terms of its of its growth. At least one person has died so far, and an estimated 500,000 are without power as Lara continues inland. 
Authorities have warned of an unsurvivable storm surge, particularly in places like Lake Charles, uh, Louisiana, which is a very low-lying area, with floodwaters expected to reach over 15 feet in some areas. And this is according to the latest reporting in Yahoo News. Earlier this week on the ERLC front, I, I was actually given the occasion to speak with one of my counterparts over at NAM, and they already were preparing to mobilize and utilize all of the efforts uh, that Send Relief provides uh, to send help to this area of the, the Gulf of Mexico. And so, A, I'm, I'm just really thankful that we as Southern Baptists have an arm dedicated uh, to responding in a moment like this. But at, at the same time, uh, my thoughts and prayers are with the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of folks uh, that are in this storm's way. Yeah, Brent, I have an aunt and uncle and my cousin and her uh, family live there in Louisiana. They're in Mandeville, which is on the other side of, of Lake Pontchartrain. Is that how you pronounce it? And uh, in New Orleans. And they have faced significant flood damage from several hurricanes. So that's what they were battening down the hatches for this time around. I talked to my dad yesterday. They were trimming some trees uh, just to protect from some roof damage. It'll be really interesting to see the storm surge and how that affects people. Because if you saw the Weather Channel's Twitter account before the hurricane made landfall, they um, showed a video of what the expected unsurvivable storm surge could be. So these times are just a reminder to how we just cannot control nature and how we, in a fallen world, we are just at the mercy of the Lord to protect us and to redirect these storms and to, to um, make the wind and the waves be still. So as you said, Brent, we're thankful that it's been downgraded to a Category 1, and we just need to be continuing to pray for um, those in its path and waking up and dealing with the aftermath. And also, I second how grateful as Southern Baptists we should be for Send Relief. This is, they're incredible, and this is where they shine. Yeah, and just to, to kind of put a, a bow on this conversation about Send Relief, I mean, th they are literally being... Uh, the hands and feet of Jesus in this moment. People have been cast into a uh, in intensely vulnerable situation uh, because of the storm, whether it's from the storm surge and the water, just the flooding up uh, inland, uh, or the the wreckage caused by um, these record force winds. Our colleague Megan Smith, who helps us uh, prepare for the show, she noted that this is the strongest storm to hit Louisiana since 1856. That means this storm is even stronger than Katrina. Uh, that is uh, that is just incredible. Uh, so Josh, uh, actually picking up off of something else you said earlier, the three of us have lived in kind of hurricane zones at different parts uh, of our life. So I'm curious, what is the most memorable hurricane that, that you've dealt with? Or, Lindsay was wanting to know earlier, do you have any interesting evacuation stories? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and thankfully we were kind of in what I call the armpit of Florida. So hurricanes seem to always skip us, or we would get some weather, but we wouldn't get the major damage. We only evacuated one time when I was in high school. I don't remember the name of the storm because I'm just not good remembering these names in these years, but we had several cats and a dog or something like that. I don't know. And we drove to Georgia to a friend's house in the woods and we were okay, thankfully. And everyone else was okay in Jacksonville, but we lost one of our cats in the woods. Oh, it's a okay. sad story. Well, better than losing the dog. Oh, man. Yeah, some people might celebrate, but still, I feel so bad. Well, this is a pro-dog podcast, so there's there's that. Um, probably the worst hurricane that I've ever lived through, although my hometown has been rocked by a number of major hurricanes before. Uh, one, Hurricane Matthew, a couple of years ago, did significant damage. But back in 1999, we uh, Hurricane Floyd came through, and 20% of our city was underwater. And I had you know, friends and family members who lost their homes as a result of this. Uh, in the neighborhood that I used to live, there were a number of people who uh, ended up 
living in campers in people's backyards because they had lost their home as, as a result of this flood. It was just absolutely surreal to see people in what were neighborhoods where like the neighborhood where my aunt lived, uh, instead of being able to drive on the roads, which you couldn't because they were underwater, there were literally people driving their fishing boats or riding their fishing boats around in this neighborhood from house to house, getting things out of homes, getting people out of homes. It was absolutely devastating. Yeah. And, you know, for my part, um, I remember in 2004, I was taking my first job right out of college, which was uh, on a U.S. Senate campaign based out of Orlando and Hurricane Charlie, which was the first of four hurricanes to make landfall that year, which was just insane. Uh, But this storm came up from southwest Florida all the way up to inland central Florida, right by Orlando. And by the time it got to Orlando, it still was packing 90 plus mile an hour winds, which was, which is really incredible. And I was leaving the office as the storm was really approaching. And, you know, usually it gets pretty gray and overcast before a hurricane actually gets to you. Uh, But this was the very leading edge of it. And I just remember pulling away from the office and uh, getting to an interstate that would take me north to where I was staying. And it looked like that scene out of Independence Day where (laughs) this giant wall of cloud is coming over you and you're just thinking, okay, maybe maybe I'm I'm actually about to come to an end (laughs) right here. Uh, And so, um, yeah, but that was the, the first of four hurricanes. As a matter of fact, it swamped my apartment uh, and tore the roof off of the third floor of it, uh, and and it was just a a wild few weeks of recovery because again two more storms ended up coming through Orlando, and then another one uh, hit the panhandle of the state later on that summer. So we we have all survived, and uh, I am thankful that the two of you have, and we can do this podcast together and have good stories to share. Well, Brent, you just you mentioned um, Independence Day, so I want to give you a nod on bringing up another excellent movie. And uh, who was the governor of Florida that year? Jeb. Jeb. Yeah, and I want to tell you if if there is ever a time to be thankful for a leader who just knows uh, the ins and outs of of government and how to create public private partnerships and reacts well under pressure. Uh, it was Jeb Bush. Uh, he was clearly the man for that moment uh, in the state of Florida. And I just remember thinking at the time, uh, I, was, I was grateful for his leadership that he demonstrated. All right, so moving on from, from weather to, uh, once again, uh, another very serious subject uh, that we probably should uh, caution parents with uh, young, young ears around them. Uh, our next news story takes us to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where sadly we're having to talk once again on this podcast about the shooting of an unarmed black man. Uh, his name is Jacob Blake. So according to the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, Jacob Blake was shot eight times by police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, there was a, a viral video of the shooting uh, that that probably many of our listeners have seen. Some witnesses say that Blake, a 29-year-old black man, was simply trying to break up a fight Sunday evening. A cell phone video of the incident shows Blake walking around and opening up his car door before appearing to be shot in the back by police. A report suggests that Blake may have been reaching for a knife in his car but no other weapons have been found in the vehicle. Uh, Right now, Blake is paralyzed from the waist down. His father, giving an interview after all this, he was quoted as saying, what justified all those shots? What justified doing that in front of my grandsons who were in the vehicle at the time of the shooting? What are we doing? Authorities said two people have died after gunfire erupted uh, with demonstrations uh, during the fallout from this in Kenosha, and at least three people were shot Tuesday evening, and authorities are searching for the suspect of that violence uh, of, from that night. 
Uh, there was a standoff between an armed group who said that they were protecting property as several buildings burned down in the city, and law enforcement used tear gas on protesters uh, during several nights uh, of these uh, events. So uh, this is just, it is, it is incredibly frustrating that it feels like I'm having to read from the same script once again about a, another shooting. And look, there, admittedly, there are still maybe details to come out about this. Uh, there, there's still some, some, some murkiness about what exactly happened. But it just, it just seems like we are having a hard time showing consistency in our law enforcement practices in situations where the only difference seems to be the color of one's skin. I totally resonate with that, Brent, because as J.D. Greer expressed on Twitter this week, you know, he's sitting down with his children and trying to help them make sense of this. And they don't understand because this feels like a conversation that they just had, that they just sat down uh, and, and talked through. Because so many, uh, you know, over and over again, especially in recent uh, recent months and over the last several years, we have just seen these you know, violent encounters that frequently end in death between, uh, you know, black citizens, black men and, and police. And there is no question, you know, we, as we look at these individual, uh, circumstances, it's really hard for us to know exactly what may have taken place, uh, in each individual case. But when we look at this as a whole, we can recognize very clearly that there is a problem, that something has something is badly wrong, that the system has broken down. And this is a very human problem. This is something that is that as Christians we can care about and we can lament as a tragedy, regardless of what your politics are, regardless of anything else. You can look at the fact that this this man is now at least you know paralyzed and is in a situation that none of us would wish to be in. It's a it's a problem. It's a situation that us as believers, especially, we just want to see all people uh, live in a country. Uh, and in a world where they are treated, uh, where 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 we see fairness in the way that people are treated by law enforcement, and even saying that, this is none of us are in a position where we want to uh, pass some kind of judgment against all police officers or all members of law enforcement and assume uh, evil motives or that there's some kind of ill intent across the board or anything like that. Uh, but we keep seeing these situations uh, take place; these tragedies happen, and. We, we don't have the answers that we need. Well, and I think each event that happens, each tragic event that comes to light makes it harder for an already contentious society and an already hurting society in the midst of coronavirus lockdowns, quarantines, in the midst of a embittered presidential election, truly, uh, and many, many other things. It makes it harder and harder for uh, people to have civilized conversations because understandably emotions are already high. It makes it harder to avoid generalizations, makes it harder for people of different opinions to not view one another as enemies. And so Christians have hard work to do in the midst of these situations to be peacemakers, not peace avoiders or peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Um, to be advocates for, like you said, Josh, the human dignity of all people, because that's definitely not up for debate, um, and to be good listeners and good uh, sympathizers in places where uh, and in discussions where we don't understand and where we may have uh, differences. Because once again, what's what's not up for debate is how all people are made in God's image and should be treated with dignity and respect. I, I think it's it's fair for us to ask like, okay, why is it that an individual like a Jacob Blake or a George Floyd has the maximum use of force um, against him versus someone like a Dylan Roof who has just murdered people in cold blood is escorted out of the the church where he he perpetrated that heinous act i mean th 
those those instances, the the results are just incongruent, and I I don't uh, I it is I, I'm just left speechless as we read another account like this. The discrepancy that you point out in these cases is just is just too much to explain away. And so I think that this is something that, you know, obviously right now we're in the middle of a national conversation about this, about what can be done, about what kind of reforms are needed in law enforcement, about policing practices. But there is there is no question that something has to be done because what we are looking at is just it's just too much. Uh, it is it is undeniable that we are in desperate need of, of better answers and better solutions. I am oftentimes struck how in many of these instances, there, there's these little, these little signposts that I think we as, as Christians should be keying in on and seeing. Uh, so this comes from Jacob Blake's mother, Julia Jackson, uh, who on Tuesday this week, she said, quote, we need healing. As I pray for my son's healing, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I also have been praying even before this for the healing of our country. Let's use our hearts, our love, and our intelligence to work together to show the rest of the world how humans are supposed to treat each other. And that that, that just reminds me from kind of both directions we are all a, a product of the fall, and and so we need, we absolutely need healing, and and that that breach uh, that that began um, with Adam and Eve, uh, it, it's it, it's not going to be repaired ultimately uh, until Jesus um, decides to uh, to repair it. But then I'm 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 just reminded that we need to continually be in in prayer, and um, and that is something that that Jesus calls us to. And I'm I'm just so thankful that Jacob Blake's mother, in this moment of what I imagine is his very intense pain, that she she found a way to remind us of of the people that we should be, uh, particularly as Christians, in this moment. Elsewhere on the domestic front this week, the Republican National Convention took place in a virtual format, of course. Viewers saw the week kick off with President Trump being called, quote, the bodyguard of Western civilization. You know, that kind of light on the hyperbole there. And speeches from Kellyanne Conway and First Lady Melania Trump. Uh, trying to show the softer side of the president. Honestly, I, I was appreciative of some of those those personal uh, stories that they were able to share uh, by our commander in chief. And there were multiple speeches by Americans from from all backgrounds. Which I mean, I would say, as as somebody that has watched convention after convention every four years in in my life, I've actually really appreciated uh, this this new addition to the the programming of the conventions from, from this year from both parties. Uh, the event is set to conclude with the final keynote address from President Trump from the White House. And that last point has been a bone of contention this week as several official events have been featured in the in the midst of this political convention, which many analysts see as a violation of the Federal Hatch Act which states that no federal officials or federal taxpayer resources may be used to sway an election. Uh, So obviously, whether it was the official pardoning uh, of one gentleman or the naturalization ceremony uh, that took place uh, for a handful of immigrants uh, in the White House, there have been folks questioning whether this is uh, above the board ethically and legally. So watching the conventions this week, uh, I just want to say something that all of us are thinking, which is, man, like there was all this speculation ahead of time that the Republican convention was not going to, uh, you know, go off without a hitch, to put it mildly. And honestly, it's been a really, really uh, impressive showcase uh, so far in terms of just just the quality of, of the programming. The um, 
the big thing that I would point out from what you said, you know, this, this commentary about the Hatch Act. Well, if you don't know, uh, former Senator uh, Orrin Hatch, he's now retired, but he is one of the best follows on social media. And he has been posting uh, in response to people pinging him about the Hatch Act to say, the Hatch Act is not about me. I'm retired. So, you know, that was cool uh, to see that. That's right. I, I do. I do love Senator uh, Hatch's Twitter feed. So, uh, Lindsay, I know that you were particularly interested in Vice President Pence's keynote from Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland, where uh, we got a good dose of of uh, some speechifying from the vice president. Yes, I was just interested in a, a little clip that I saw. Now, listen, this is not the first vice president or president to use scripture out of context, to misquote it, to change things on both sides of the party aisles. He will not be the last, (laughs) but still, it was so interesting. Uh, Let's see the quote from Hebrews that he just changed. Let's run the race marked out for us. One of my favorite verses, by the way, but not as it is here. Let's run the race marked out Wait, for us. He's not talking about a political race. <laughs> no, let's in, in that verse. Hey, hey, it just is kind of shocking. Let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. I am thankful for our country, but I'm not fixing my eyes on her. I'm fixing my eyes on on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom. And never forget that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that means freedom always wins. <laughs> so it's just a, how do you say the word? Conflagration? Conflagration? Is that how you say that? Yes. I mean, I don't think you have to say it with the awkward conflagration. Well, I think it rolls off the tongue just there. a little bit better. It's just a conflagration. I can't say it. I get tongue tied. Conflagration. Well, I, of, I would say he, he conflated. Uh, he conflated, but I wanted to be able to say the other way uh, different <laughs> themes and topics and such. <laughs> but again, he's not the first and he won't be the last. I'll just back you up, Lindsay, and say that 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 commentary is is right on. Okay, let's turn to Joshua Wester's alma mater, Liberty University. So there was some big news made this week, and we're going to cover that later with my wife, who is also an alum of Liberty. I'll give you $5 if you can tell me the meaning of alma mater without looking it up. Oh, Lindsay's doing that. <laughs> Just start the one that the one that the school, college, or university that one once attended. Yes, but no, it I means think he... the lat the Latin meaning. Oh, it, it mean, the Latin. It means nurturing, Wait, mother. nourishing mother. It's the it's the place where you were, you know, ed, your education matriculated. You know, yes, took shape was was formed. So there you go. Is that what the I'm mothers in y'all's here. in y'all's household are referred to as? You call McCaffrey and Meredith alma mater. Alma mater. Alma mater. <laughs> <laughs> I think our mothers, our mothers <laughs> would be a modern. <laughs> okay. All right. So on to the small Bible college Back in Virginia. On track. That's right. Uh, turning to Lynchburg. Uh, so Jerry Falwell Jr. has submitted his resignation as president of Liberty University. The school announced his departure this past Tuesday, saying that Liberty's board of trustees had accepted his resignation. Now, There was some drama as this played out. Uh, The move came amid escalating controversy over Falwell's conduct, according to Baptist Press, as well as allegations that he condoned an affair between his wife and a man he described as a family friend. Following publication of this report, multiple news outlets said that Falwell had agreed to resign. Then he denied those reports And then finally, he did resign. So it means a new era is here for Liberty University, which we should point out is one of the largest evangelical institutions in the world. Uh, And so we we have a couple of staff members. Josh, you're one. Uh, Chelsea uh, from our Washington, D.C. team is is also an alum of, of Liberty. Um, I mean, this is a this is a big moment for a highly consequential institution. It really is, Brent. And I 
I feel like we need to apologize to our listeners today because we have just covered so many heavy and just grisly topics. Uh, as a Liberty alum, like looking at this saga that has been playing out in terms of uh, in terms of Jerry Falwell Jr. over the last several years has been has been really hard and painful. Um, and I'm not alone in feeling that. I mean, that is kind of a, a widespread sentiment among among Liberty students and alumni. And honestly, a lot of us are just grateful that it is finally come to a resolution because Liberty is, as you mentioned, like it's it's the largest. If I have it right, it's the largest. Uh, private higher education like institution in the world. It is uh, certainly in the United States and it's hugely important for what it represents. I mean, Liberty's mission is to train champions for Christ. Like if you go into their classrooms, uh, if you're on the campus, like that is, that is very clearly expressed. Their goal is to you know, in providing education to teach people what it means uh, to use their minds, their hearts uh, to follow after Jesus and to make Christ known. And so there's kind of been, there's just been this kind of dark cloud hanging over the university for the last several years. And a lot of people are very hopeful, even from statements that were made today to the student body, uh, are very hopeful that, that it will be a new day at Liberty because this is a hugely important institution. It is something that uh, for Christians, it, they're, they're responsible for the education of hundreds of thousands of people, the influence that it holds and the potential that is there to shape the culture and to point people toward Jesus, not just in the students they're educating, but in all of the lives of the people uh, whom their students will reach. This is, this is monumentally important. It harkens back to Genesis 3 and Adam throwing his wife under the bus, <laughs> and it just is just— currently is a pathetic example of a leader and a man. I just have to be honest. But that's not to say that that he is outside of the bounds of redemption at all. And that's what we hope for him. But uh, his example currently is certainly not one to be emulated. That I, I want to retweet that comment. That was fantastic, Lindsay. Totally agree. And that's that's uh, that's actually what my own wife uh, has been saying uh, in recent weeks. And, uh, and so... Yeah, uh, we'll get. I guess we'll get to hear a little bit of that in a minute. All right, so let's close out with some good news. So this last one, though, I, I hope we all can take some pride in doing because we're we are doing it, America, on the coronavirus front. New coronavirus infections fell by almost fifteen percent over the past week, continuing a steady downward trend. The U.S. is averaging roughly uh, f- uh, just over forty-one thousand new confirmed cases per day which is down significantly from 49,000 last week and over 65,000 per day at the height of the summer outbreak. The pace of new infections fell in 20 states, including the summer hotspots of Arizona, California, Texas, and Florida. In fact, California, which has been just a a stubborn holdout, uh, according to Axios, finally saw a significant drop down to 31%. Uh, this week. That is, uh, that's, that's really welcome news. And uh, just keep wearing your masks, right, Lindsay? That's right. So, but let's end there because that's some, that's some really good news. And so Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to Brent's wife, Meredith Leatherwood. And we are so pumped to have her on the podcast today. She is a professional in the Christian music industry, and we're excited to hear about that and the work that she does in her career. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, what it's like to live with and put up with uh, Brent Leatherwood. But for now, uh, Meredith, we want to say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. And as we're getting started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing uh, right now as the founder of Leatherwood Promotions? And if you could, tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life. Yes. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. And it does take a lot of grace to put up with Brent. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, I love it. But, oh, um, but we're yeah. so glad you said it. No, I know, but they, they know it. They, they know it. So you're not telling yes, them you guys anything are painfully they don't know. Exactly. I did. I just started, I actually just launched a new company called Leatherwood Promotions, but I've worked in the music industry now for almost uh, 18 years. Uh, in the past 12 years, I've worked for a Christian label doing promotion. And so Right now, my full focus is on promoting Christian songs. And um, one of the reasons that's so important to me is because growing up, Christian music was huge in my faith journey. Um, I used to take my little CD player with my headphones that you had to hold flat 
or the disc would skip, you know, and I took it everywhere with me. And I remember sitting and just listening to songs from Stephen Curtis Chapman and other people that were huge in the 90s. Um, and I would listen to songs on repeat and they were a major impact on my faith journey. And so my hope now is I feel like music has gotten even better. And so I hope now that like we, I can help promote songs that are helping other people in their faith journey when they hear them. I would say one of the things that God is teaching me in this season is actually something um, that I read yesterday in scripture in 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9. Paul is talking to Timothy and he tells him um, to not be ashamed of the gospel and to remember that we're relying on the power of God. He's the one that's called us with a saving power and it's actually his power and not from our works. And so I think sometimes, you know, I think all of us can can tend to work a job where we don't maybe necessarily see the harvest of ministry. Like sometimes our job is maybe just planting the seeds. And so I remind myself with my job sometimes I don't always get to see the impact that songs have on people in their lives. But I'm trusting that the Lord, his word is never void. And so whenever music goes out that has truth about him, that it's touching people's lives. And so that's something he's teaching me right now in my career. Meredith, it's so fun to be talking to you, and I'm so glad for what you shared. And my uh, listeners might not know that my husband also works in the Christian music industry, so this is like worlds colliding. And you yes. sharing about your experience is like talking to the girl version of my husband. You named Stephen Curtis Chapman, and that's his hand down, hands-down favorite artist. In fact, he asked me if we had a boy, if we could name him some something like Stephen. I was like, no, that's weird, because... <laughs> Uh, we don't know him. <laughs> so, oh, so also, yes, I wish your listeners works for a fantastic label. So. Yes, he he is blessed. He loves it. Uh, I also wish our listeners could see Brent's face right now because they know that we we FaceTime during these conversations so that we can like give each other cues. But he's like all smiles as you're talking. Oh. <laughs> Well, okay, glad. so <laughs> let's get into some of the culture content. This podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So you, can you tell us what things in culture you and the folks around you, aka Brent Leatherwood, uh, are paying attention to right now? So one of the areas that I feel like has been so prominent in culture right now is um, the whole racial justice initiative. And that has been definitely at the forefront also of the Christian music industry. In fact, a few months ago when I, I think everybody kind of noticed on social media that they um, had a blackout Tuesday. Um, and that was also observed in the Christian music industry, just as a chance to kind of stop and say, like, are we listening to all of the voices present in this industry? Are we fully supporting them? Are we are we giving everybody the same stage and the same platform? And um, one of the things, obviously, Brent and I obviously are very, very like passionate about um, racial unity. And one of the things that I specifically would love is just to see a broader context of that within the Christian radio industry. We have a lot of great radio stations, um, but the listeners tend to be of the white majority and the artists tend to be of the white majority. And uh, we do have some great um, black artists, but I want to see that grow and I want to see it look more like the church. One of my radio station visits I've done in the past few years, I had a great artist named Jasmine Murray with me. She is a beautiful black woman. And uh, we went to a, a station in Jacksonville and it was so great watching her interact with some of the fans that were there. And there was this mom and two girls who are who are black that came to meet her. And just to see them have a role model, these young girls have a role model that they looked up to that looked like them. And I just thought that was so important. Like, not that our role models, you know, and the people that we respect have to look like us, but I think it's really key for our kids to be able to see, especially within the Christian faith community, people that look like them and um, people that they can follow who follow God and who want to be a champion for him. And so that's something that I think we definitely uh, in our format want to work towards like a greater unity um, in the community of faith. So as Josh mentioned at the top, you have recently started your own business uh, in a pandemic, no less. Uh, so what's been the most rewarding and challenging aspects of uh, your project so far on Leatherwood Promotions? 
Yes, I have. 2020 has been a year of a lot of new things and a lot of craziness in our world and in our home, starting a new business. Um, I have loved it. I have to say I was really nervous at first, um, but I have loved probably the greatest reward that has come with it is the freedom to be home and to work from home. We have three young kids, two of them in school, one of them still at home. So having that flexibility to be able to work and do my job, but also run and you know, do pickup or drop off or all of the stuff that comes along with having kids. That's probably been the greatest reward. Um, I think the hardest and most challenging part is I think anytime you take on something yourself, I think you put a lot more work in. I think you put a lot more hours in because it means more to you. And so it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit more hours. Um, but I, I've really loved it. And looking back now, I'm so grateful for all of the experience I've had before working for great companies. But I'm really, I'm really happy now to be doing my own thing. Well, Meredith, we're so grateful that you're experiencing such a rewarding aspect of this um, new venture and thankful that people like you are in the Christian music industry. So this week, we want to talk about something that has been in the news and that is actually close to you because you attended there, Liberty University. So Liberty's been in the news. There's been a saga playing out there. You're an alum of Liberty. So what do you think about what's been going on and the way forward? Sure. Um, I am. I'm an alum of Liberty. I went to seminary at Liberty. And um, just let me say to start off, like I had a fantastic experience there. Um, I graduated in 2012, though. So um, this was, you know, about eight years ago. But I had a fantastic experience with professors and I loved everything about my study there. Um, I have been really burdened and sad over the past few years to see just kind of what's come out with Jerry Falwell Jr. and some of the statements he's made. Um, I was talking to Brent the other night about this. I'm especially burdened for his own children, um, just seeing this all play out on a public scale. Um, but as far as Liberty University, when we attended my graduation, Brent and I were married, we were expecting our first child. And Brent and I both looked at each other and said, we would love it if our children came to this university someday. Like it's just built on a great mission, Ever since um, kind of the change in circumstances with Liberty, with everything involving Jerry Falwell Jr., we changed our opinion on that. We were like, I don't know if that university, you know, is, is a place that we would look forward to sending our kids to anymore. But I the one the one good thing about this that I think is, is I think it is time for him to move on. And I think that this is a great ground now for Liberty to kind of recapture that original mission that his father built the university for. And I think it still has a great staff. I think it still has a fantastic student body. I think it is doing a lot of the right things and offering, you know, online education for people who maybe live near and far who want a Christian education, but can't afford to go on campus or can't move to go on campus. So um, I do. I hope I hope they they bring in a new leader now that can kind of move forward and kind of revive some of those very key missional concepts that uh, the original Jerry Falwell meant when he founded the university. All right. So I've got this uh, final question, babe. And uh, often when I describe for, for people what you do here in Nashville, I, I usually tell them that you kind of have the quintessential Nashville music city job. Um, you, you've worked in Christian music for a while now, and you've worked in the music industry for almost two decades. Uh, so, uh, you know, give our audience a peek behind the curtains. What What's the most interesting or unique story that you have from your time working in the music industry? Sure. There's a lot of elements uh, over the years that I have enjoyed about this job, but I think I have a favorite story I'd like to share. I have a sister. She is the oldest in our family, and we actually lost her this past year to cancer. But Amy was born with Down syndrome, and she just had the most amazing spirit about her. She loved the Lord with all of her heart. And one of her favorite things in the world was Christian music. And she loved artists that I worked with. And so one of her favorite artists in the whole world that she would talk about all the time was Mercy Me, uh, which is an artist that I've worked with for the past 13 years. Um, and one week, Amy was in town visiting. She came quite a bit with my mom and they would come visit. And I got a call from Mercy Me's manager and they knew that Amy came to visit quite a bit. And so they said, your sister doesn't happen to be in town right now, does she? And I said, yeah, she actually is here. And they said, well, we're filming a new music video for our single at the time, which was called Flawless. And it's an awesome song just about how we're all flawless in Christ because of the work on the cross. And they said, would Amy like to come be in our music video? 
And I was like, are you kidding? She would, that would just make her day. And so anyway, long story short, she got to go on the set and she got to be in the music video. And you would have thought that she was a Hollywood star on a, on a movie set. She was so excited and so happy. And um, it makes it even sweeter now, now that she's in heaven, that I can go back and watch that music video and see her smiling face. And so um, that's just one of the unique opportunities, I think, over the past over the past 20 years or so uh, that has really stood out to me as a fun day that really, really meant a lot to her and meant a lot to me. Well, so I want to I want to say this. Thank you for being the first spouse to join us on the ERLC podcast. We're just we're just breaking new ground. Well, I'm honored to be on. Well, Meredith, we just want to say thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, it is really cool to hear, uh, obviously, to learn more about Brent and the rhythms of your family, but also just your own story and the, your work in the Christian music business, and especially that kind of insider perspective. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Uh, Brent actually is coming up on a deadline, so we're going to call this Lunch on the Go. Brent, tell us what's what's on your mind. Well, so what was on my mind this week is, you know, I, I even remarked to Meredith the other night as we were walking around our neighborhood. I was like, you know, I I feel like I can sense a little bit of fall in the air. And now granted, it was 87 degrees outside. Humidity was probably about its typical, you know, 80%. So it, it wasn't quite autumn. But then I realized it wasn't the weather. It was Starbucks bringing back the pumpkin spice latte. So I know that fans of local coffee shops like Dean and Sarah are really excited uh, to go ahead and don his uh, traditional scarf uh, and and head through uh, the local Starbucks uh, drive-thru to, to pick up his PSL. Well, they're back, folks. Uh, as of Tuesday, the pumpkin spice latte will be found in your local Starbucks. I, I actually don't like these things. <laughs> but, <laughs> Neither do I. But I'm I glad love, you said it. <laughs> but I love the conflict uh, that that inevitably ensues when they reappear. Yeah, I'm also not a big fan of the whole you know PSL thing, but it is a phenomenon. You know, it is a thing that people are all the way into. Speaking of things that people are all about, uh, hey, it's not a joke this time. It was announced this week that we're looking at a West Wing reboot of sorts. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the oh, full be thing. Still, not, be still my heart. I oh, know, brother. Oh, man. So the West Wing, it was announced this week that the West Wing cast is going to get together for basically a stage reading of an episode from season three, which is uh, titled Hartsfield's Landing. If you've not watched Hartsfield's Landing, you should go do it. It's a really great episode, but it's uh, for the the cast is coming together to benefit an organization called When We All Vote, which is a nonpartisan organization that just promotes voter participation. Aaron Sorkin, who is now 59, and Thomas Schlamme, or Tommy Schlamme, who was, I think, the producer of The West Wing, uh, plan to film this reunion over the course of several days in October in Los Angeles, and it's going to be a big thing. I mean, it's something I can't wait for. It's going to be released on HBO Max, so I'm not sure what I'm going to have to do to be able to get access to it, but somehow, some way, I'll figure it out so that I can watch this West Wing. This, this isn't quite what the the legion of fans uh, out there have, have asked for. Uh, I mean, at least give us a full production West Wing reunion episode, you know, like a one-night event. Uh, so that we can see how the the different storylines have have ended up all these years later with a you know President Seaborn. Um, yes. So well, I'm just we're not- it's like a supply and demand thing. You know, I'm thinking just give us this, you'll get overwhelming response, which could you know lead to more good things down the road. That's true. That's true. So maybe I should be more optimistic, but uh, but I'll take it. I'll take it. So it's good to get the band back together. Let's let's. Uh- move on from West Wing and close out with something different. (laughs) So, though I did have a pumpkin donut from Dunkin' Donuts today, and that was really good. Way better than a pumpkin spice latte. So, my lunchroom... Hold on, I gotta stop you. Dunkin' Donuts. To me, their donuts, you know, the whole Dunkin' uh, versus Krispy Kreme, I think Krispy Kreme's donuts are way better, except for the blueberry donut from Dunkin' Donuts, which is a real national treasure. 
Yeah, see, I think cake donuts at uh, Dunkin' Donuts are way better. I'm not really a fan of airy donuts because there's just yes. not much there. I gotta. I, I have to say, I think that we have gotten more feedback about your preference for donuts than almost anything we've ever no, talked for about. Food in general. Food in <laughs> That's general. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, but this is not about food. This is a story, a local story from here in Nashville. So apparently, well, we know that the airport is going is under construction because we have so much more traffic coming through, and Nashville's growing. Well, they are replacing the carpet. And apparently this is causing a bit of an uproar because it's quote unquote iconic. Uh, And someone started a social media account that has kind of caused it to go a little bit viral. If you've never seen the Nashville carpet, it was like this blue and brown and and taupe and beige, lots of swirls in it. You can go on to the Instagram page. Yes. It really was iconic. I mean, iconically ugly is what I have to say. But apparently one of our coworkers said that people are getting squares of the carpet, which is utterly disgusting to me. If you Well, they're they're making rugs out of them so that you can like, you know, put them at your front uh, door. Oh, you think about all the foot traffic that's been on those carpets uh throughout the years. That's just really There's disgusting. just foot traffic on your rugs at your house. I mean, I, I don't actually we are a no shoes household. So You still have there's... rugs at your front door. Yeah, 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 the front door. But I was thinking that people were going to keep these and, like, hang them up or, like, touch them or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's gross, I got to (laughs) say. That's totally gross. So anyway, you can go on Instagram and see a picture of what the the new flooring looks like. It's much better, sleeker, easier to keep clean. But uh, RIP BNA carpet. That's right. How sad to to see that. Because, as uh, one of our colleagues pointed out, so many trips – the thing that greeted you when you got off the plane was this, you know, ugly but iconic BNA carpet and, you know, rip. It is no more. But for a really heavy episode, uh, that was a really, you know, fun, light way to end it. So we're going to leave it there. But we want to say thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can uh, help us spread the word about the podcast by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. You can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with more content.